Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and this time round, we're doing another Warhammer episode. I assume it's going to say something like the Black Templars on the front of this particular episode, and that's because it's about the Black Templars. <laughs> I guess I need to stop doing that because it's going to hurt my throat at some point. But yes, the Black Templars are a chapter of Space Marine in Warhammer 40,000, which allows me to talk about something I keep thinking I've done an episode on, but haven't actually done an episode on, and also allows me to once again tippy-toe around the huge subject, which is the Crusade. So we're going to go into the medieval era and strangely a bit beyond it as well. And also I'm going to be able to talk about a really fun game and how it evolved over the decade too. If you are relatively new to the podcast, why am I doing this? Well, I was a teenager. In fact, I was a sort of pre-teen when I first got involved in role-playing games and things like that. Dungeons and Dragons, all that good stuff in the 1980s. And then what happened was I went into a hobby store. Uh, well, it was actually a toy store on the ground floor. And then upstairs there was more modelling stuff. And I wandered upstairs one day and I completely ignored things like the train sets. I couldn't care less about Hornby train sets or things like remote-controlled aircraft, which seemed way too complicated for a 10-year-old. But I did spy these little metal figures of cheeky-looking goblins and grumpy-looking dwarves, and I was kind of hooked. And they were largely made by Citadel Miniatures, part of Games Workshop. And over the years, particularly in the 1980s, that evolved into specifically Warhammer Fantasy Battle, think orcs and elves and dragons and stuff like that and Warhammer 40,000 where you've got space marines and the Imperium and you've also got space elves and space orcs but they're not called that anymore. We are evolving through the Warhammer 40,000 world. It first came out, the first edition came out in 1987 and that's the one I played and basically by the time we're into the early 1990s I stopped playing it. Full disclosure, when I went to university, I stopped playing video games, I stopped reading comic books, and I stopped playing things like Warhammer, because in the early 1990s, girls just weren't interested in this. The amount of young women I meet today who are fans of things like Frank Miller's The Dark Knight, or there they are playing Final Fantasy 16, or they're actually 
brilliant painters of Warhammer on Twitter. It's like, good heavens, I should have been born 20 years later and then I could have met these people. I wouldn't have had to sacrifice these things. But for the record, while I did sacrifice all those things to go to university to get a girlfriend, mission accomplished. I got a girlfriend. <laughs> I will say no more than that. But moving forwards... I then left university, I got a proper job, I worried about mortgages, I fell in love with another lady, we ended up getting married, we ended up having children. All this stuff is going to keep you away from some of this stuff, although I had reverted back to playing video games for the record. And so when my boys were, let's say, round about 10, they're obviously different ages, but round about that age, we walked past a Warhammer store and it was the same kind of stuff, although it's now in plastic. There were space marines, and there were giant stompy robots, and there were dragons, and there were ogres. And they're like, Dad, what's that? I went, I, I actually know what that is, kids. Let's go in. And for a good five years, they really played it hard and painted the figures, etc. And it all kind of faded away during COVID, where actually I got even more into it because there was nothing else to do during COVID. So there was painting away and so on and so forth. And now, fast forwarding to 2023, I'm largely painting and building. I play very rarely, but I'm sort of on the edges of it. I listen to various podcasts about it and follow stuff online about it. But it's one of these things where, under what circumstances do I have the opportunity to sit down and play a game? My local Warhammer store has got a new manager. He's a really nice guy, but he does things a bit differently. So I have to try and find somebody to play a game with. And do you know what? I've got other things going on in my life that means that I have to find somebody else who's got a thousand points of Warhammer 40,000 to play. And there's a new version of it that's just come out. So to put it into context, I mentioned first edition. It didn't even occur to me when I'd finished playing, given it up to go to university, it didn't even occur to me that there'd be other editions. Of course there would be, you know, over the decades you're going to enhance and change the rules. As it turned out, when I quit was about six months before second edition came out, so I was very close to realising that things were about to be wholesale changed. Fair enough. And when I came back in, it was at the beginning of 8th edition, and I didn't think anything of it. I assumed, okay, clearly there's been other versions of this over the last 25 years or something like that. So, yeah, fair enough. Here we are on 8th edition. But what I didn't realise when I got back into the game is, over the decades, how quickly the new editions will be coming out. And now, pretty much regular as clockwork, every three years is a completely new version of the game, which means all of the codexes that you've bought. And a codex is basically the rules. So there's the rule book, which tells you how to play the game, but then the codexes are how to play that army. The rule book would be unfeasibly large if it was going to give you the list of every single figure and every single unit of every single army. So you've got the core rules and then you've got the actual army book, if you like, for your army. It could be the orcs, it could be the Eldar, that's the space elves, or it could be space marines. You get the idea. And so now, at time of recording, 10th edition's just come out, and so I've realised I've spent hundreds of pounds on books that basically I never got round to using. So again, another reason why I'm not really playing, because these books that I bought, let's say, five years ago, are completely useless. And so I'm going to sort of take my time. If I really, really want to play a game, I guess then I'm going to have to buy the codex, and therefore I really have to want to play it. What's all this got to do with Black Templars, Jim? Because in first edition they didn't exist. They were in no way on the horizon. Indeed, in the real world, 
the Black Templars first came out in 4th edition. Now apparently, this is not in my wheelhouse of knowledge by the way, I think from about the 3rd to the 6th edition they were all pretty similar. So you could actually superimpose the rules from one to another and the codex was basically fit for purpose if maybe the points values had changed over the years. So it was in the middle of this period where there was a kind of homogenous, stable state of the game. And I get it, a company can't just sell the rule books and then that's it. You have to come up with new rule books or you stop your revenue streams. And it's the same thing with coming up with new figures. Otherwise, if people just keep buying the same old figures, they'll eventually own them and you've just dried up your revenue stream. So Games Workshop, for all kinds of reasons, keep evolving the game. Sometimes it's genuinely for the better. Ninth edition, which I think I had one game of in total in the three years, I mean that was also during Covid, suffered from serious, serious rules bloat. There were times of getting gotcha happening, and I heard this from another people, there are just so many different rules layered upon rules layered upon rules, and you know, you really had to know your army inside out, and that was a whole time job. So when you're fighting another army, you haven't got a clue, you got vague ideas what they can do, but you haven't got a concise idea. So when you put all that together, you can see why things might need it to have been streamlined. But also, with the Black Templars, what we've got is a group of Space Marines that are a bit different from the other Space Marines. So, gonna have to have some new figures for those then. And so, what it is, if you aren't aware of the Warhammer world, is the Space Marines are the elite soldiers of the Imperium of Man. These are humans, but the Space Marines themselves have been genetically enhanced. I'm not going to go into the difference between Firstborn and Primaris, but yeah, the idea is they go through loads and loads of genetic manipulation and surgery so that they are literally bigger than your average human and stronger and able to breathe in toxic environments and so on and so forth. They've got these gene seed inside of them that makes them bigger, better, stronger. And there's also all these augmentations as well. Some chapters have lost them and others haven't and it all gets... It, it's all in the lore, L-O-R-E, okay? So that's what's going on there. But if you take quite literal poster boys of Warhammer 40,000, the Ultramarines, they're the easiest ones to get your head around. Clearly, their influence in sort of the ancient Greek and Romans world, their iconography is quite familiar to you. Yes, they're wearing powered armor, but they might also have the plumes of what you would consider a centurion on the top of their head. So you get the idea that's the officer. And they got sort of fasces, stick bundles, which are very associated with ancient Rome. So the whole thing has that sort of trappings of it. The Black Templars, however, are very much leaning into medieval military orders, which I'll come on to a lot more about them overall. But also in the lore, so it's Warhammer 40,000, although we're now in the 41st millennium for reasons, but in 30,000 AD, you've got the Horus Heresy. And just before the Horus Heresy, the Emperor of Man, with all his Space Marine legions, were conducting what was known as the Great Crusade. There'd been a period where humanity got separated by various warp storms and alien invasions, and so the Emperor of Man gathered together his massive legions of Space Marines and was heading across the galaxy, reunifying, whether you like it or not, under the Jack Book of Fascism and all that stuff, with all the Space Marine legions recapturing re-gathering together humanity and that was the great crusade and the great crusade never quite finished because we had the horus heresy where some of these space marine legions start turning to darkness start turning to chaos and start fighting each other and fighting the emperor and the emperor ends up getting mortally wounded and he ends up sitting in the golden throne on planet earth right so 
after the Horus Heresy, these legions were broken up into chapters. So basically, if you've got, let's say, 50,000 space marines of the Blood Angels chapter, well, some of those turn to chaos. So rather than just worrying, and indeed entire legions, something like the Death Guard, for example, or the Emperor's Children, wholesale moved over to chaos. So the idea was, let's split them up. So no chapter now is going to be more than a thousand space marines. Kind of, because we're going to see how that breaks the rules in a minute. But the idea is, let's concentrate them. So if you've got the Imperial Fists, for example, which was one of the original 20 space marine legions, that was broken up. There's still a thousand of them called the Imperial Fists, but others are going to be called other things, like the Crimson Fists, for example, or indeed one of the other successor chapters, chapters now being a thousand, rather than a legion being an almost infinite amount of space marines, and one of those is the Black Templars. So this is called the second founding in the world of Warhammer. The first founding is sort of pre-Great Crusade, but then after the Horus Heresy, we're sort of breaking up all the legions, and that's the second foundation. So you've now got the Black Templars being part of this new wave in the 31st millennium. And so now fast forwarding to Warhammer 40,000, they've been around for 10,000 years. Now, if we're talking about the various other space marine groups, like I say, it could be the Ultramarines, it could be the Blood Angels, the Dark Angels, etc. I've done a whole episode on the Primarchs. So if you want to go back and listen to the Primarchs were the original leaders of each one of the chapters and a little bit about each chapter. So that's a whole thing. That's nearly an hour long. Listen to that one. But the thing is, they've all got their own central planet. There's their headquarters in essence. However, the Black Templars are a bit different because they are on permanent crusade. They have a fortress monastery and this is a massive spaceship that just keeps traveling and it's called the Eternal Crusade because for the last 10,000 years they have continued the Great Crusade on a much smaller scale. I mean this is the interesting thing by our standards it's still a huge scale but by Warhammer 40,000 and indeed you know the internal logic of the worlds it's a much smaller enterprise shall we say. So with that in mind we've got the leader of the Black Templars is the Grand Master Helbrecht. And that's a kind of Germanic name, which again is going to go back to the military orders in a minute. And also what it's telling us is there is a Grandmaster. That is the title. And again, that goes back to the military orders, which I'm on my way to it. Okay, we're not quite there yet. So Grandmaster is the title in charge of the Black Templars. And obviously you've heard of the Templars as something from history. And indeed, they had Grandmasters. The last one being Jacques de Molay. More on him later. I keep sort of setting up the stuff that's happening later, okay? So, some examples of some of the things that the Black Templars have been on during this never-ending crusade of theirs. There was the War of the Beast. And indeed, and multiple times, they seem to have gone up against major orc attacks so the black templars are kind of associated not only dealing with heretics and all that good stuff but also orcs if you like it's interesting how some of the alien species have specific hatreds of other alien species like the orcs and the elves or eldar really don't get on there's history there whereas you've got the tau which are the newest race they really don't get chaos because they can't be corrupted by chaos but Chaos will happily fight absolutely anything. So some of these have like a 
almost a gut reaction of hatred to each other and others they kind of couldn't care less. In case of the Templars, they kind of got a special reputation against the Orcs, and vice versa. Then there's another one called the Angevin Crusade. I'm not going to go through the details of any of these things, but Angevin is a specifically medieval European word. So whoever wrote that down originally clearly is referencing, again, medieval history. Now, as I said earlier, the idea is now in the Warhammer 40,000 times, each Space Marine chapter is meant to have only a thousand Space Marines to stop this potential contamination of heresy. And in the case of the Black Templars, it's considered that they've probably got about 6,000. So they've broken the rules. So have things like the Space Wolves and the Grey Knights. Not going to go into that lot. But the point is, yeah, sometimes they're not necessarily following the orders. But that's okay because they're the bulwark against the Xenos hordes and the holy embodiment of the Emperor's will and all that kind of stuff that you get written about in Warhammer. That is the setup, if you like, of this stuff. And indeed, like I say, if you just want to buy a pack of standard Primaris Space Marines, you can legitimately paint them into any chapter that you want. There are little extra bits that you can buy to give them pads, shoulder pads and accessories and things like that, which might make them something like a White Scar or an Ultramarine specifically or a Dark Angel. You know, take your pick, have your flavour, etc. But particularly in the case of the Black Templars, there have been specific kits available for you to make a Black Templar crusading force. And they got a really religious flavour to them. Again, leaning into the kind of monastic life of the Middle Ages. Now, overall, all of the Space Marine chapters have that kind of flavour. The Space Marines are celibate. They all live together in barracks. This absolutely is pulling from history. And they all, pretty much, have a Grand Master who's, in essence, the head of that chapter. A couple of the original founders, people like Gulliman, they're back as well. And the Lion of the Dark Angels, which, for the record, I got right when I did the episode. I said he might well be coming back. Genuinely, that was before any whiff of him coming back. There was rumours, but nothing else. And then now you can buy him in plastic. There we go. The prophecy is true. That is the world of Warhammer and how they lean heavily into this. And I keep saying, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Well, everybody, here it is. And there was much rejoicing. Let's talk about the military orders and the Crusades. The Crusades weren't just in the Middle East. I have made reference to this on a number of other episodes. They also happened in France. That would be the Albigensian Crusade, not to be confused with Angevin, although the Angevin Empire, in inverted commas, was basically the lands that was owned by the English king and also their French lands in France. And there were the Northern Crusades, which were quite often conducted specifically by one of the military orders. Now, the Northern Crusades, outdated, continued after the stuff going on in the Middle East. Once we've had the First Crusade, there can be no doubt the First Crusade was the most successful crusade, because before that there were no Christian kingdoms, Western Christian kingdoms in the Middle East, and now you've got four different areas. In the north, you've got the County of Edessa, You've got the Principality of Antioch, Antioch being a key, both medieval and ancient city, incredibly important in the early Christian writings as well. Then you've got the County of Tripoli, you've all heard of the city of Tripoli, and the Kingdom of Jerusalem. 
But while you will find maps putting out these four areas at the, the start of the 1100s, what it doesn't show you is the fact that these people may now be under new rulers. That doesn't fundamentally change who they are. So take, for example, the most Christian king of Jerusalem, who definitely was Christian-y Christian. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And absolutely had Western European blood, but the people living in Jerusalem and in the ensuing areas were Jewish and Muslim. And there may have been a few Christians kicking around, probably there were some Armenian Christians, Orthodox Christians, Nestorian Christians, but there weren't many Catholic Western Christians actually in the kingdom of Jerusalem. It's just the people at the top happen to have changed. I'm still paying my taxes as a peasant, it kind of doesn't really matter. So the problem was, for these Christian states out in the Middle East, they were surrounded by various different Muslim powers, various different Muslim warlords. One of the reasons why the First Crusade was successful is, kind of by accident, there was no central authority. It wasn't like the First Crusade was marching into a unified empire. If it had been, if it had gone 50 years earlier, it would have hit a united Islamic empire, which would have been able to coordinate their response, and probably the First Crusade would have been stopped in its tracks in Anatolia, modern-day Turkey. But that's not what happened. They happened to walk into a political vacuum and basically everybody squabbling amongst themselves. And while they're all arguing, hey, we've just set up our four different areas. But over the years, some of these Islamic powers start coalescing together. So the fundamental problem the Crusader states had for 200 years is they never had enough men to fight their battles. Indeed, towards the end, 
and one of the critical things leading up to the Battle of Hattin with Saladin in 1187, you basically had enough men to coalesce a large army to fight some kind of Muslim threat, or you had those men to actually man all the incredibly cool and well-built castles around the whole of the Christian states. So it meant that if you were to critically lose a major battle and lose a lot of men, all those people would no longer be manning those various forts and castles, and they're all going to just have to surrender. There's no other option. That's exactly what happened after the Battle of Hattin in 1187. It was a crushing defeat for the Crusaders. But even after that, we get the Third Crusade and a resurrection of some of these areas in the Middle East. So for about 200 years, the Middle East may have had a King of Jerusalem, but they needed as many troops to come over from Europe. Now, as I kind of mentioned with the Black Templars then, sometimes a crusade would turn up with lots of men. Problem was, crusades weren't turning up like every other year. Sometimes they were once in a generation thing. I'm running out of men. So, what do you do in these situations? Well, there was the creation of the military orders. Now, I mentioned in passing monastic life, and that's what somebody in the military orders was. With a monk, they live in a community. They take a vow of poverty. They're not allowed to own anything. A vow of chastity. They're not allowed to get married or have intercourse with other people. And they spend their day contemplating God, going to various forms of worship and invariably writing out bits of the Bible because that was the printing press of the 1100s. So that was a monk. And the military orders are exactly the same. They are a religious institution. These men live together. These men take a vow of poverty and chastity. But instead of them praying all the time, they fought for God. That's the difference. And if you want to turn that into modern parlance, what's the Islamic term for somebody who constantly fights for God? That would be mujahideen. We would today, in the modern 21st century, consider those people religious fanatics, but the Christians had their own flavor of them back in the Middle Ages. And indeed, using that kind of iconography for Warhammer works really well. It fits into the whole grim, dark thing. But at the same time, people sometimes don't realize, yeah, they're not the good guys. But the military orders themselves were the best equipped, best trained heavy cavalry in the world at that time. How can I say that? Well, yes, the, the Mongols may have been better, but they were light cavalry, horse archers. I'm talking about knights dripping in chain mail with that bucket helmet. I'm using completely historically inaccurate phraseology, by the way, for any historian listening. But the point is, generally people will get this. They understand. I, oh, yes, I know exactly what we're talking about. They got a lance. Yeah, they do. And they got a tabard with a white tabard with perhaps the red cross on it. Well, maybe, but yeah. And they're sort of charging at the infidel. Yes, that's basically what happened. And a lot of crusader battles as opposed to sieges boiled down to could that heavy cavalry corner the islamic forces because if there was nowhere for the islamic forces to run because they were almost invariably light infantry and light cavalry then that heavy cavalry would go through them like a hot knife through butter but if there was space to maneuver then that heavy cavalry after they've charged the kind of well, not quite literally run out of steam, but certainly they're low on energy and it's now very hard to get back into a, some kind of formation. In the meantime, they're being peppered by all these arrows. Then that spells disaster for the Crusaders. So there were three main military orders 
and you're going to see how the Templars absolutely have nothing to do with Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code, Blood of Christ, all that kind of stuff. I'll get there. First of all, the first ones that were founded were the Knights Hospitaller, or the Knights of St. John. And the reason why they're called the Hospitallers is because this is where we get the word hospital from. They looked after, when they weren't fighting, they were looking after the sick. And so they basically invented the hospital. But we're talking about 1100s, admittedly Middle Eastern levels of medicine, which was vastly better than European forms of medicine in the 1100s, but still pretty rudimentary stuff compared to modern day medicine. But at least they were trying. And they were trying to feed the weak and hungry. This is all very noble, charitable work. But when they weren't doing that, they were strapping on their armor and they were sticking it to the infidels. They were training regularly. They had the best equipment because basically they kept getting money from the Vatican. These people cause problems. The military orders cause problems for the likes of the king of Jerusalem. Because if you think about it for a moment, if you're the king, you get to tell everybody in your kingdom what to do. There was the constant tension in Europe about, hmm, bishops are major landholders, so they should be picked by the king. But also they're religious people, so they should be picked by the pope. So that argument about which way it goes is called the investiture contest, because you invest a bishop. So this contest between the local kings and rulers and the central authority of the pope, the Vatican, and that went on for over a hundred years. And that was just over land ownership. Forget about actual armies. The bishoprics of England, for example, didn't suddenly have a whole load of military men, but literally the Knights Hospitaller did. So if these knights, you may be counting on them turning up to the battle, I'm the king of Jerusalem, I really need a stick it to the Amaya dynasty in Egypt. Well, if the Hospitallers for some reason don't want to do it, I can't force them to. So that's a real problem for the actual central powers in the Middle East, the, the Christian ones, anyway. So that's the Knights Hospitaller. Then the second founded one is the Knights Templar. There we go. And their seal shows two men riding on the back of a horse. This is to reinforce the poverty aspect of it. Now, the nickname the Templars is because they ended up taking over the top of Solomon's temple in Jerusalem, which is now the site of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and also the dome, the golden dome, although at the time it was just lead colored. And basically there's a rock in it. The interesting thing about that dome of the rock is it's the only Islamic holy place that's not a mosque. Basically it's meant to be the site where Muhammad over one night went up to heaven to meet the various different other prophets and God, etc. And then came back down again. Before that, it was also said to be the place where Adam had first stepped on land. And so it's always been a kind of religious place. And today it's caused a whole problem because it's very important to the Muslims, but it's on the site of something very important to the Jewish faith. Let's not go there. But basically, the Knights Templar didn't do it to annoy either the Jews or Muslims. They genuinely thought that this was something they could just basically use as a base of authority. Now, just like with the churches and bishoprics in Europe. So I'm a rich person. I'm about to die. I don't want to go to hell. So I will give some of my land to the local church. And in return, they're going to pray for my soul. And then I get to go to heaven. Yay. And so these sort of donations were going to the Vatican, but they were also going to the military orders. The thing that people forget is 
people were taking their religion seriously in the 11 and 1200s. There was no cynicism like it is today. Fighting the good fight, going into the Middle East and spreading the word of God by violence if necessary, was not an oxymoron. It was not trying to be nasty or cynical. And therefore, these military orders, while they were taking about poverty, were gaining more and more land in Europe. The third military order worth mentioning is the Teutonic Knights. Now, they did have operations in the Middle East, but actually most of their power was in modern-day Western Poland, southwestern Poland, and Germany. This is all way before these various different territories were all finalized in terms of their borders, etc. And so the Teutonic Knights were the major players in what was known as the Northern Crusades, which to begin with were against pagans. I know this is a weird thing to say, and I mentioned this again in another episode about the Wicker Man talking about paganism. And Estonia was the hotbed in the Middle Ages of actual paganism. They weren't Muslim, they weren't Orthodox Christians, but over time they converted to Christianity basically by the end of a sword. And the Teutonic Knights kept heading east into modern-day Belarus and Ukraine and Poland as well, parts of Poland. And this was the Novgorod power, which was the proto-power of what we would now call Russia and Belarus and Ukraine. As we all know, that's a complicated subject. But they were Orthodox Christian. They absolutely were Christian, but they were fighting against these other types of Christians, the Teutonic Knights. Now, because it's safe to say you're well aware that Christianity is doing quite nicely in the Baltic regions, the Teutonic Knights kept going. When the Middle East fell... There was a scramble between the three main military orders. There were other ones as well about, okay, what justifies this? If you're giving us all this money to fight the infidel and we're no longer in the Middle East, what are we doing? So in the case of the Teutonic Knights, they already had an argument. Well, we're still fighting in Northern Europe. And so the Grand Masters kept going, literally directly ruling the lands into the 1500s, into the Renaissance era. In the case of the Hospitallers, they actually started moving to the islands of the Mediterranean, first Rhodes, and eventually they were kicked out of Rhodes by the Ottoman Empire. So they went to Malta, where they lasted until Napoleon turned up to kick them out. And basically there was no fighting. So that was really embarrassing that this huge pedigree of their centuries of epic fighting, including a massive clash, the Great Siege of Malta, between the Ottoman forces and the Maltese Hospitallers, and the Hospitallers won. Something that they can cherish for centuries, but by the late 1700s, the fight had clearly got out of them, and Napoleon turned up and went, right, you're disbanded, and they went, all right, fine. For the record, both the Teutonic Knights and the Hospitallers, both of them still exist in a form, basically as charities for the Catholic faith. So that's what's going on with them. But then we've got the Templars, they didn't have islands to go to. They didn't have Northern Europe to go to. So they are running out of places and excuses for why are you paying us in the first place? Why are we fighting? Now, for the record, the Templars, if you look at the contemporary stories, nobody doubted their loyalty. And indeed, at the final siege of Acre, which was the last Christian city to fall to the Mamluks, by then there was a different Islamic power in the Middle East, and the rest of the city fell, but there was the central citadel, which was held by the Templars, and even though they were outnumbered by tens of thousands of troops, they hung on for days afterwards under sort of constant attack, and so they were allowed to, to leave 
with full honours in essence. And so the thing is, they've now gone. And in the early 1300s, there were these claims by the French king against the Knights Templar. This is where we start getting some very famous things. For example, the sealed orders to capture these most holy and well-regarded knights were to be released on Friday the 13th. The idea of Friday the 13th being unlucky is directly linked to the trial of the Templars. I'm heading towards the end of this story, so just before I get there, as always, please click subscribe, give us a review on whatever podcast you're listening to, tell somebody about us, that'd be great and lovely to sort of spread the word. And also I'm at Jem Daduchu on Twitter and also on threads, although I think I have three followers on threads. Hey, it'd be lovely if you could follow me on that, but feel free to ask me questions or give me reviews or suggestions there. That'd be lovely. So let's go to the trial of the Templars. Basically, the French king was broke and the Pope at the time was very weak and kind of had to do what the French king told them to. So even by the standards of the flawed legal systems of medieval Europe, this was recognized to be a completely trumped up charge against the Templars. And it's sort of throughout the whole of the of the course of the trial, which took years, by the way. This was not a done deal in like six weeks. It looked like at certain points that the Templars would basically be let off with a fine. But the French king kept pushing. And so eventually, and the other problem was that the Templars at times denied these charges of heresy, but then at other times they admitted to them and then recanted them. So now they're kind of looking like liars and making it harder for the Vatican and the Pope to actually absolve them if they seem to be flip-flopping on whether or not they've sinned in the first place. But eventually, in 1314, in front of Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, the last Grand Master of the Templars, Jacques de Molay, he and a few of the other key people from the Templars were burnt at the stake, which is actually what you do to heretics. So they were burnt at the stake. And then what was fascinating then is after the burning, the crowds rushed towards the ashes and started gathering them as sacred relics. No other time with heretics did people act that way. It shows you that everybody there knew that this was a miscarriage of justice. And it was also said, this is one of these clever things. We don't know quite when this was written down. Maybe this is written down a few months later, so it works. Maybe it genuinely was said at the time, and this is coincidence. But as Jacques de Molay was being burnt, he cursed the King of France and the Pope, and in essence said, if I'm dying, they're going to die too. And <laughs> both of them died within months of Jacques de Molay. And indeed, when it came to the French king, when he was laid in rest, where he was laid in rest was hit by lightning and it started burning down. This does kind of look like divine retribution. These are facts, by the way. I am not suggesting actual divine retribution. This could just be one of these wild coincidences that happen in history from time to time. But that was absolutely a thing. But of course, these people were fabulously wealthy. It had nothing to do with, like I say, the blood of Christ or anything like that. The other thing, fun fact for the Templars, is if you're going on crusade, it's really expensive. And so actually carrying your wealth from one part of Europe into the Middle East, you could lose it all overboard on the ship or something like that. So with that in mind, the Templars invented 
checks, which were used into the 21st century. So you would deposit your money, let's say in Paris, at the, the Templars location there, and they basically say you have, I'm going to make this up now, two pounds weight of silver, and they put it on a, on a piece of paper, and then you hold that piece of paper, which is basically a check, you then go all the way to the Middle East, you go into the, the temple in Jerusalem, where the Knights Templar were, you hand over the check, they then give you two pounds of silver. So, it was an ingenious banking system created for crusading, which is a slightly insane statement that was still being used by people into the 21st century. And it's really only online banking and these tap debit cards that killed off the check. I used them early on in my adult life. I'm sure lots of you did too. Thank you, the Templars, for that. But funny enough, if you're in banking and in religion, we all know that there's money there, so you don't need to then add an extra layer of conspiracy theory. But because they were the only ones killed by heresy, you know, actually found heretical, all these conspiracy theories swirled around them. And that's why the Knights Templar are kind of cool. They are the Black Templars. They're not the Black Teutonics or the Black Hospitallers. Hospitallers, because it's so similar to our word for a place of healing, just doesn't sound intimidating at all. So if you like... Inadvertently, a brand was created of mystery and power and secrets, which when you look at the cold, hard historical facts, sadly, just isn't there. So there we go. That's another episode of Warhammer. Thank you very much for listening. And as always, another episode coming soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.